Habits. All of us have them. Some we're happy to keep and others that we would love to kick. This time of year is a really valuable time for reflection and a chance for us to get forensic about those things that we just automatically do. Do they serve us? And maybe, just maybe, there's another way to look at them. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly, amongst the busyness, the uncertainty and the unknown around us. As a trained dietitian, Dr. Gina Cleo has helped people improve their health and well-being. However, she started to notice that her clients struggled to maintain their progress over time. Mm, I kind of resent that personally. <laughs> Driven by the desire to find lasting solutions, Gina pressed pause on her clinic and completed a PhD at Bond University. It was here that she uncovered the transformative power of habit change and its potential impact on every facet of life. In this conversation, we talk about some of Gina's personal experience, including an experience that left her questioning everything and required her to rebuild every habit in her life, starting with brushing her teeth. We talk about the importance of self-belief and how it is the number one factor to successfully achieving any goal that you might put in front of you, of realising the steps backwards are actually part of the process, not proof that things aren't working, and how important it is to chase rituals over results. Dr. Gina Cleo's new book, The Habit Revolution, is a game changer when it comes to the practical tools to explore and understand our habits. This conversation will leave you feeling empowered, not embarrassed about habits. So please soak up the wisdom and the warmth that is Dr. Gina Cleo. Gina, I am beyond excited by this conversation. I don't know if I'm going to walk out of this as a different person or <laughs> you're just going to become my go-to habit person. I hope uh, in a good way. <laughs> I'd love to start a little bit about your story before we get into your research mm. and before we get tactical and practical around habits. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your story. So I started my career as a dietitian. My grandparents both had type 2 diabetes and heart disease and I was like, it's just ridiculous that they don't get to feast on all this amazing food like we do. So and we, we're an Egyptian family, so we love big feasts. And so I started my career as a dietitian and I loved what I did. I just found that I could only help people short term. And through the process of, you know, in and out of the short term, like cycling in and out of goals and achievements, I thought I was a terrible dietitian. <laughs> but then I realized after reading the medical literature that actually 95% of people who set out to achieve a goal, whatever it was, end up failing or falling back into where they started. And so this started this fascination with the idea of sustainable change, with actually achieving something but maintaining that success long term. And I was also struggling with disordered eating myself at the time and it frustrated me that you know, I had this amazingly successful clinic, I was a dietitian, but then I'd be, you know, binge eating a packet of Tim Tams on my drive home and feeling completely powerless with this. And so I pitched to Bond University to do a PhD in the space of sustainable change and they loved it. And so they offered me a scholarship to do that. And that's where my research journey started. And I found this you know, everything I read pointed to habits being the only proven method to achieve our goals long term. And so I implemented research and which then got published and picked up by media and by medical conferences. And 
this sort of like snowballed into the career that I have today as a behavioural scientist and habit researcher. There's a couple of things I'm going to pop a pin in and come back to (laughs) around your story. But in particular, that's interesting to me around that interesting dietitian and sometimes we can believe that if we give people information, that'll be enough. So sharing the information and then that realisation of knowledge is often not enough, but also your own lived experience of disordered eating. Mm. From your perspective at that time, what were some of the stories going through your mind? What was what was that kind of wrestle? Because I can imagine it's a wrestle and oh, a wrestle yeah. that even if it, that's not your story for people listening, it's a wrestle we all know, right? Yeah. What I should be doing versus what I actually am finding myself doing versus letting myself off the hook of going, yeah. I deserve this or, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. But what were some of those stories? the story I told myself was this was just another diet gone wrong because I'd be trying to restrict because I just had this big binge the day before and so now I'm starting this diet and the diet didn't work and so I'm going to try another one and I always blamed the external things you know or I would blame myself for not having enough self-control and enough willpower and when I learned about the limitations of self-control it it completely changed my life and I had so much more self-compassion But back then I was much more into self-loathing, a lot of shame. I was very good at what I did for other people and I couldn't seem to do it for myself. So exactly like you said, it was a battle. But I always would say tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow I'm going to start a new strategy and I'm going to do this differently and it's going to be great. But even if I would eat an apple out of place, and what I say by out of place is I hadn't planned to eat that. I would just go, well, the day's ruined and you know, I would just self-sabotage again. So there were so many lessons I learned through growing up and maturing but also through my research that has completely changed my world. That lived experience and personal experience of the wrestle in the story but how often do we tell those stories of well the day is ruined or the week is ruined or the yeah. entire month is ruined because I didn't do X, Y or Z. And that wrestle between self-loathing and self-compassion, what helped you to start changing that path? Was there one or two things that, because it is a seesaw, yeah, that we always, yeah, <laughs> always is probably the wrong word, but we do sit on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was really helpful to understand that I wasn't the only person who was like this, but also When I understood more about the brain and started learning the neuroscience and the limitations of our brain and what it's capable of, I really started to appreciate why I was doing what I was doing. And it became more about working with my brain and with the capacities that we have as human beings rather than trying to achieve these outlandish goals that really it's just impossible to sustain long term and one of those biggest things was this understanding that self-control is a limited resource if you think of it like a bank account and there are things that are constantly debiting your account whether that's traffic just making decisions screaming children being hungry having a poor night's sleep fatigue whatever it is there are constantly things that are taking away from our self-control and The way to replenish that is through rest, meditation, good night's sleep, having something to eat. And so I was trying to achieve these things from a completely depleted state where I wasn't nourishing my body very well and 
I was constantly stressed because I'm in this state of shame so much. Mm. So, of course, when I'd set out to do something, it wasn't going to happen. And so when I started to sort of let go a little bit, let go, and I and I'm, what I mean by that is reduce the goals, going, okay, of course this happened today. You know, I just had a really stressful situation happen or I had a really terrible night's sleep or whatever. I was able to just bring in that self-compassion a little bit more and that was a game changer. It's one thing to notice that about yourself. It's a whole other thing to pitch to Bond Uni for a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and you said that so eloquently and just go, yes, that's what I did. But what prompted that? What was it to go, yeah. the work that I'm doing, I'm good at what I do or I can see it, but it's not resulting in behaviour change and, and I want to get interested in, in how our brain works and the neuroscience of the way that we think, the way that we might step into old patterns of behaviour. But what was it that kind of went, actually, I'm going to do a PhD upon oh, you with this. Ali, I'm like a dog <laughs> with a bone. I am so persistent with things and I wanted to do the research. I needed to find answers. And it was, yes, for my patients and for the clients I was working with. And almost, it almost became, I felt like it was unethical to tell people I can help you because I knew that end up back at my clinic weeks or months later. I can't take all the credit for the PhD because I was actually at Bond just visiting a friend. I'd just come back from a year of traveling and a friend of mine was working at Bond at the time. And I was like, let's grab coffee. She was like, yep, come to the cafe. So I met her there. And this is fate, destiny, coincidence, call it what you will. But one of my supervisors from Griffith University, so a different uni who I did Masters of Nutrition and Dietetics with, was now working at Bond. And he happens to walk past. He also happens to be the head of research. And he walked past. He's like, Gina, what are you doing here? Hey, when are you going to do your PhD? I've always thought you'd be a brilliant researcher. And I sat on it for, you know, all of two minutes. And I said, if you can get me a scholarship, <laughs> I've already got an idea. And he's like, all right, come to my office and, and we'll take it from there. And two weeks later, I was sitting at Bond University at my own desk starting my PhD. Amazing. I love it. It's just saying yes. Think about it for two minutes yeah. and away we go. Yeah. <laughs> but I also love it when people give you a flippant comment and say, put your money where your mouth is. Right totally. Totally. Um, and hone into for me what that idea was. What, it, what was yeah. it that specifically that you wanted to look at around behaviour change? My question was, if I know this is good for me, why am I not doing it? And if I know this is not so good for me, that this is harmful for me, that this hurts me, for example, overeating, why do I feel so impulsively drawn to want to do it? And why does it feel so strong, stronger than my mind, stronger than my logic, stronger than my knowledge? And I needed to understand why for myself again, but for also my clients and the clients I'd work with who really struggled were generally new mums or people who have lost something, people who are grieving or really stressed, super busy. And it made sense, you know, there was a real pattern that the more we were carrying, the less capacity we had to make changes. But that's really what I wanted to know is why do we do the things we do? What motivates us? What drives us? to do certain things? Why are some people more motivated than others? Why do I wake up and say, the night before I planned to exercise and now I'm scrolling on Facebook Marketplace for two hours? Like what happened? 
So those were the questions that I had. We're going to get to some of the answers and what you found (laughs) out in your research. But before we do, it's useful to probably get clear on what we mean by different definitions because often I think we'll have – uh, we'll say the word like habit, yeah. um, but it might mean different things to different people or there might be different things that kind of come to mind. So when you look at habits, how do you interpret that? What what do we mean by habit? What is a habit versus what is just like behaviour? Behaviour yeah. or what's society around? Like what, what how can we define yeah. what that is? Great question. So our behaviours are intentional conscious decisions or actions. They're things like how do I get from A to B or what should I make for dinner tonight or where should we go on our next holiday? They're decisions that we consciously and deliberately make. Habits, on the other hand, are subconscious. They're automatic and they're triggered by something in our internal or external environment. So a habit could be, for example, putting your seatbelt on every time you sit in the car. It's a habit. You don't have to think about it. You don't need to set an alarm or a reminder to do it. You always do it. And the trigger for that habit is sitting in the car. So you sit in the car, it's triggers you to put on your seatbelt. Now, triggers could be emotional. It could be like emotional eating. When you've done it one time, for example, you'd say you felt lonely and then you had something to eat and your brain's like, whoa, I feel better now. We should definitely do that again next time we feel lonely. And that then creates this feedback loop. Whenever you feel lonely, your brain goes, that's the trigger to eat because that made me feel good, so let's do that again. And as you repeat that behaviour, the more you repeat it, the more ingrained it becomes and then the more subconscious it becomes and eventually feels like second nature. So our other triggers can be the time of day, the place we're in, our emotional state, our social environment, and then also what we've just done beforehand. So those are those are our habit triggers that trigger our subconscious actions, which are our habits. So interesting when you start to go not only the thing itself, but what's happening around it before yeah. and after. Neurologically, is there benefits to habits? Why do our brains form habits? Yeah, I mean, we make on average 35,000 decisions every single day. And if you were to think consciously and deliberately about each and every one of those, can you imagine how exhausted you'd be? I don't think I'd be able to get out of bed. So our brain creates automations or habits as a way to preserve mental resources for things that we actually need to consciously think about because our brain recognises things that we do repeatedly and it's like, okay, well, I don't need to consciously think about that anymore. I'm going to put mental resources towards something else and I'm going to put that in the automated part of our of my brain, which is literally a different part of your brain than the prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain. So it puts it somewhere else and that's why we have habits. It's energy preservation. So let's jump to some of your findings within your research. (laughs) (laughs) What, why do we do what we do? (laughs) (laughs) My God, how long have we got? (laughs) Oh, there are hundreds of reasons why we do what we do. It's everything from feels safe, what's culturally acceptable, what's socially acceptable, how much capacity we have, what our values and beliefs and attitudes are, to what's the most convenient and the path of least resistance and what's worked before and what hasn't, you know, life lessons. There is so much, but why we do what we do day in and day out comes back to, again, like how much capacity we actually have. If you think of what your world was like, say 10 years ago, your habits and routines may be quite different to how they are now. 
I know that certainly when I was, say, in my early 20s, I lived an entirely different life to one that I have now where I have a mortgage and a husband and an acreage property and a business to run. And so there's there's so many things that influence it, but what I do know is the reason that we don't do what we want to do a lot of times is because of our environment and that can be our internal or external environment that doesn't support the behaviours that we want to, that we actually want to do. So you, this is going to be coming out in January, which is probably one of my favourite times of the year. There's something feels really refreshing about a clean slate, a new page, a lot of potential, a lot of possibility. Mm. Woven into that is the what I didn't get done last year, what I need to be better at, what everyone else is doing. (laughs) So I'd love to go down that path of thinking about the kind of life that we might want to have and how we might start to shift and change some of the habits for the time that's in front of us. If there is someone listening who's going, okay, 2024, whenever you're listening to this (laughs) is, this is going to be different. I'm going to do things differently Here's a bit of a list of the types of things that I want to focus on. Before we get to the what should they do, what do we be mindful of in creating those lists? Maybe the stories that sit behind them, the where they kind of come from, some of the narratives that we might be thinking in our, our minds. What's useful to think of in the, I guess, in that planning early stage? I think we focus so much on what we didn't do very well or what we can be doing better, especially when we're comparing ourselves to other people. And we seldom look at what we've done really well, like how much growth we've had or that we don't react the same way to something that used to trigger us before or those tiny little micro decisions that we made that support the lifestyle that we want to create. And in research, it shows over and over again that actually it's when we acknowledge the good that we've done, the things that we're doing well, that becomes reinforced and then we want to do more of that. Over looking things we're not doing so well and trying to change them, we should actually be working with our strengths rather than focusing on our weaknesses. And it really shifts this idea of news resolutions or goal setting upside down because what I'm telling you is actually why don't you focus more on the things you're doing really well or the things that you're doing but you could do better rather than the things that you feel like you're not doing well at all. I think we can get so many more gains doing that. How do we do that? So it sounds great. So Gina's just told me, write a list of everything I'm nailing. Like I'm just killing it. But how do we, like, how do we do that? It's so hard. It requires so much self-awareness and um, I guess a reflective a reflective and a curious mind. Mm. You know, where was I last year? And noticing in those little moments the things that you're doing better or you're doing well or things that you're proud of. It could be because people tell you that you're really good at certain things or it could be because you remember a feeling of, oh, I've done this differently and I'm really stoked about that. And it could be really practical. I know last year my goal was to do this and, you know, I'm not doing it all the time but I have done it a few times and that's something I'm really proud of. So I think awareness is probably the answer to that. (laughs) Taking the time to notice it, actually take on 
other people's compliments. Yeah, and it's well. not natural for us, is it? I mean, if I was to say to you now, okay, Ali, give me three things you're really good at. No, I can tell you the things I, I missed this morning or totally. I didn't quite get done and there's a load of washing in the washing machine <laughs> that I've still got to put out and even though it's a sunny day, I should have got it out earlier. Yeah. I go quickly to those yeah. but it's not easy to to sit in that. Yeah. But you're saying that the research is identifying that when we do that, what do we notice? Like what's the upshot? What's the gain of being able to see what are the things that we are doing well? The upshot of that is is self-efficacy, which is the belief in ourselves to be able to achieve a certain task. And self-efficacy is the number one predictor of success. If we believe that we're capable of achieving something, we'll achieve it. If not, we're not likely to. It's the number one predictor. And so when we notice the things that we're doing well, we start to get these little, I guess, nuggets of self-efficacy where it's like, oh, I did that or I can do that or I, I am able to achieve that. And that helps to fuel you know, our capacity to push forward with other things and to believe that we can achieve other things. And so when we feel or believe that we can achieve it, we're more likely to exert the effort into actually doing it. What you've just said is so critical. So it's the number one I just want to, you know, the number one thing. Predictor of success. Is whether we believe that we're going to be able to do this or not. It's believe in our ability to achieve a task. So it's not how good the list is. It's not how good my planning for the week is. (laughs) I'm sorry it's not, but this is much easier. Yeah. And a lot of that then requires us to reduce the goals is to go, okay, I know I want to achieve this, like this 10 out of 10 thing, but why don't I just cut it all down and I'll just do one out of 10 of whatever this is. And once I've achieved that, I'm going to have more self-efficacy. I'm going to be really proud of myself for doing that because I'm going to make sure I take a mindful moment to be proud of myself. And then you level it up from there. But we should really be starting so small. I call them micro habits, just tiny little steps that we can compound over time. Now, we were talking about this before we hit record. There's a part of me that wrestles with that. Mm. Actually, there's a massive part of me that wrestles oh, yeah. with that because yeah. it almost wants to go, you're not really having a crack. Yeah. We we want to be able to show, whether, and sometimes it's externally driven, show others that we can make big gains. Mm-hmm. So we do want to make these big shifts. Maybe I'm even feeling a little bit impatient yeah. about wanting to get there. But on the flip side, there's also part of my thinking that's going, but I'm letting myself off the hook. So if I've got oh, a yeah. goal to write a book. Yeah. And instead of write a book, it's going to be write a blog post or write a chapter or write a page. Mm. There is a part of the internal narrative that's going, that's not big it's enough. slacker. It's yeah. such a slacker. Like <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not, no, like you can't totally. tell anyone you're doing that. That's mm. how embarrassing. Yeah. You've got to really kind of level it up. Yeah. How do we, like, why is it so hard? It's so hard. And because we are impatient and it does feel like, you know, the messaging out there is go hard or go home. Yeah. If your goals don't scare, you know, they're not big enough. Like we hear all these things that make us feel like we need to be achieving great things. I'd love to share a story with mm. you of a client of mine that I worked with. I'll call him Gary. He had, was carrying significant amounts of excess weight and his doctor said to him, your heart's conking out. You need to do something for yourself. I need you to just start doing more exercise. Gary had had an exercise for over 20 years and when I first saw him, he said, I, this is what I want to work on. I want to work on exercising more. And I said to him, okay, for the first week, 
I want you to just put your sneakers on. I don't want you to do anything else. I don't want you to go outside. You don't need to do anything. Just put your sneakers on. It took him a week to find his sneakers, but then once he eventually did, he felt, you know, more confident walking around, even just around his house. And then eventually he went out to his letterbox, which he did very rarely. And then after that, he walked down the road and then he was curious about what was around the corner and he did that. And then eventually he was doing this lap around the block where he lived quite regularly. And I touched base with him again and he was feeling so much better. It had created the confidence in him to even just step outside. And I made sure that Gary would put his shoes on at the same time every day because I wanted to start this habit loop. 7 a.m. equals put your sneakers on. And that's all I expected. Eventually, when he would go down the road, he discovered a park down the street from him. So he walked this loop of the park. It was a five-kilometer loop. A year later, Gary entered into a 10-kilometer race and he walked the whole thing. He didn't run, but he now considers himself an exerciser. He lost so much weight. He, his bloods are back down to healthy levels. And he said to me, if you had told me when we first started together, I'd like you to go outside for a walk, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have even attempted to do it. But you gave me a task that I knew I could achieve. And yes, it felt ridiculous. <laughs> but it allowed me the self-efficacy. It allowed me the, the confidence to go again. And the thing I wanted Gary to understand, and also I teach this with all my clients, is that when you're starting a new habit and you're creating the habit, it's not the actual habit that you need to focus on. It's starting. Our brain will link the trigger and the start of the habit together. So when you get up and at 7 a.m. you put your shoes on and that's what you do, you will naturally do the flow effect of that, which is doing a bit of walking. However much or however little walking you do isn't actually the goal. The goal is just to get into the routine at 7 a.m. I go for a walk. And you will do however much capacity you have in that day. But as you go outside and do longer walks, that's going to be your new normal. So then 7 a.m. equals a five-kilometre walk, and then it's going to grow from there. But you just need to show up, just start. And that's where the goals need to be to start off with. That story is incredibly powerful. And again, just that it's not about the habit mm. that you focus on. Yeah. It's, it's about the starting and those small things that I, I can do that. Yeah. I guess also what comes to mind for me is, well, then it's it's harder to fail if, yeah. if the goal is to put on my shoes and go to the mailbox sure. or even just to put my shoes on yeah. at the same time but to do it every single day yeah. and to be able to then see that that reinforcement that becomes, yeah, really powerful. Yeah, and if you think about any change you've made in your life, what was the hardest point of time throughout that? For most people starting. they say it's a starting. Totally. Exactly. And so if we can just focus on starting and get really good at starting – we can knock down the hardest part, the rest becomes a flow. And I think that's what the mindset that I've changed in my life and it's been so beneficial is, yes, Gina, okay, doing this tiny little goal seems so tedious. And yes, you have a high capacity and yes, you could do more, but starting's the hardest part. And so if I'm tired and stressed and fatigued and hungry, am I still going to be able to start? I want to get to a place of yeah, I can still start because it's so easy. I can't say no to doing it. And I know if I do that, the rest will just happen. I've never walked into the gym and gone, all right, I'm done now. I, my goal was just to get here and now I'm going to leave. Like, no, my initial goal was to get my shoes on and get to the gym. 
And once I'm there, I'm going to do a workout. doesn't matter how big it is. But now I've got a routine of exercising. And I'm, I'm stepping into what that yeah. space looks like. So just whatever it is, even as you're thinking about the year ahead, what's that first piece? What's that just starting piece that comes to mind? What are some of the habits that I guess that you have stepped into, behaviours that you have kind of shifted and changed? I completely like so protective of my sleep routine. <laughs> I've suffered insomnia before and it sucked. <laughs> so I just <laughs> never wanted to do that again. And so I have habits around my sleep where I'll put my phone away, all, all devices from about 8pm. Mm. I go to bed about 8.30, but that's sort of something I've always done. And from there, I have no blue light globes at home. My bedside table, I'll either burn a candle or I have a little no blue light sort of light next to me. I won't have caffeine anytime sort of after midday. I don't eat too much sugar in the evenings because that affects my sleep. And then in the mornings when I wake up, I sit in the sunshine for about 20, 10 to 20 minutes just to get that flood of blue light and the flood of sun, which helps my circadian rhythm to go, okay, it's morning, now it's time to be alert. It's also amazing for dopamine production. So we can get like 60% of natural dopamine just by sitting in the sun for a few minutes in the morning. So that's something I do. Um, I'm very regular with my meals. I just, I eat when I'm hungry and I don't when I don't. And I exercise regularly, which I really enjoy. I think that my motivation with training is my mental health. I've stopped caring about aesthetics or, you know, feeling fit or strong. For me, if, I, if I'm in bed and I'm like, oh, it's such a struggle, I'm like, no, because I'll have a way better mental health day. And then I'm out the door. It's not even a struggle for me to do that. So I'm very value driven in that way. I don't scroll on my phone too much because I genuinely don't find it a good time. I know a lot of people are quite stuck in the, in the rhythm of scrolling too much. I play Tetris instead of scrolling <laughs> on social media, which I don't know if it's any better for me, but that's sort of my vice. <laughs> Not recommending that as a habit. <laughs> there is a point where you've done too much Tetris, though, as opposed to scrolling. <laughs> I have. Oh, yeah. Um, so those are sort of the main things that come to mind. One of the things you've mentioned a couple of times, which I think is so valuable that we often don't think about when we start to set goals or actually start to look at the things that we want to do, but really being considerate of the capacity that you have what does that look like so I guess the kind of things that are coming to mind is really being mindful and honest with yourself about what else you've got on your plate and even if you don't even if you're starting down that that goal or that habit and then life turns up um, how do we make sure that we are being kind to ourselves while still being true to the to the thing that we want to change yeah in, when capacity starts to get stretched? Yeah, it's such a beautiful question and something that I'm very mindful of. I guess capacity will change all time. It will change from day to day and from week to week and it's a great idea to be mindful of that. It could be a big project at work. It could be one of your kids are sick. It could be the new year and, you know, there's that lull period before you start work or when you go back to work and it's overwhelming and those things will reduce our capacity for other things. And so I think it's important to come back to the start. But also maybe you're used to, you know, say you're writing a book and you're used to writing every day. 
you might reduce that to I'm going to write for 10 minutes every day or you might say I'm going to write for as long as I normally write but only two days a week and that's okay. It's just changing the goalposts with your level of capacity, remembering to bring it back up again when you're feeling better. Um, a few years ago I started powerlifting, which I don't do anymore. My body's not made for powerlifting. <laughs> I thought it was a good idea at the time. And I remember getting quite unwell. I, I had the flu and I just started. So I didn't want to get out of this routine of, you know, this 5am gym sessions. And, and it was, I had a trainer, so it was there three days a week. And so when I was sick, I still got up at the same time. I got dressed. I would drive down to the gym. And then as soon as I got there, I would drive straight back home and I'd get in bed. And what I was doing is just creating the habit of still getting to the gym at 5am. And so when I got better a week later, I got up, I was straight at the gym and I didn't really have to rebuild the habit again because I'd continue to reinforce it even when I couldn't train. So I think the self-compassion piece is do as little as you feel as you can. And it doesn't matter how small that is. It's the starting, it's the showing up that's the really the most important part. And do that when you can. Again, there's such kindness in that permission around that and to also recognise even, you know, you only mentioned it really in a small way, but if powerlifting's not for you, then don't keep pushing it yes. either. So yeah. it's that ability to actually still check in and go, how does this fit for me as opposed yeah. to being something I feel like I need to keep pushing yeah. or doing. Which can feel so hard to do when there's external pressures. Mm. And, you know, I know that a lot of my friends who are mums really struggle with this, you know, this mum's got a full-time job and three children and she's like totally fine and I've only got one child and I, I don't work and I'm struggling. It's like, but that's okay. You know, you've probably got other things that you're working through that you don't even know and whatever that might be, right? And, and even if you're not, who cares what everyone else is doing? I think if you're enjoying your, your life and you're happy with your lifestyle and you're doing the things that you want to do, then who cares what other people are doing? And that's probably part of the reason I don't scroll too much on social media. I just do not care what other people are doing. People are so worried about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, they're not uh, you know, paying much attention yeah. along the way. That's it. So being mindful of capacity, we also know that life can turn up with some really tough circumstances, things that can be, can rock you to your core. And yeah. you've shared really openly about your experience of discovering that uh, your husband was cheating on you. Yeah, ex-husband. Ex-husband. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> the, talk to me about that experience mm. and navigating the way back oh. to yourself yeah. in amongst that. Because again, we, we can have the best laid plans. We can have the lifestyle that we're after, but things happen. Oh, yeah, they do. And this totally shook my world. We were together for six years. We'd just gotten married six months prior to me seeing what had happened. And I was in the kitchen and his computer was there and I just flicked it open to look up a recipe I was baking. And there was a live text message exchange between him and a prostitute that he was just about to meet with. And there was exchanges of images and talk of money. And he's like, yep, I'm, you know, I'm just outside. He told me he was going to Bunnings. And I hyperventilated and fainted. It was a total shock because I thought we had a wonderful relationship. And in many ways we did. And, and that's, I can't deny that. What I realized in that moment was, 
if I'm so wrong about this, because I could have put my life on the fact that this person could not be living a double life. Like he was so affirming of the relationship, constantly love bombing me, you know, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I can't wait to come home to you. You're so beautiful, constant love. And so there's just no way I thought, however disconnected we may have felt on a particular day, there was had to be something else going on. And he'd say I had depression or I'm really struggling because work is changing things up. Or, so I just sat in a space of compassion and empathy and allowed that to happen. And when I initially saw the messages, I then discovered hundreds more. And it had happened even prior to when we got married, which was really upsetting because he wanted to get married. I was sort of indifferent about it. And my brain just said to me, if you're so wrong about this, something you're so sure about, mm. what else are you wrong about? Everything else wide Everything. open. Everything everything and it was I remember sitting my parents down and going just tell me the truth are you even my parents is the sky really blue or am I just perceiving it like that like how do you see it describe the color for me I was just so broken and it got to a point where I'd lost track of even the normal daily habits that I had like brushing my teeth or having a shower or getting up and making a cup of tea which is something I used to do every morning I'm like do we even need to do those things? I don't know anything because nothing is safe. Nothing is normal. Nothing is as it should be. Mm. And it almost like cracked my brain is how I describe it. It just, it broke me and I was like a vegetable. I had developed agoraphobia, which is the fear of leaving my own house. And this was really wild because I hadn't even experienced any sort of depression or anxiety before. So to be experiencing panic attacks was a whole different game to deal with. But how I managed through that really awful period of time is a lot of therapy, a whole lot of therapy. I read all the books. I listened to all the podcasts. I hyper-vigilantly did all the things, which was they were, probably were they a lot. Were things that you reached out to or were they yeah. prompted by other people to say, come on? I reached out to, mm. yeah. I, remember I told my best friend sort of the moment that I realised. I've got my two best friends. We've been friends since we were 16. My friend who lives in Melbourne, she was heavily pregnant, took a one-way ticket and came down to stay with me. And she just said, as long as you need, if I have to have this baby in Queensland, so be it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and my other best friend lives in Amsterdam, so she'd sort of take the night shift. <laughs> and Monica was on the day shift. And I just needed to know that there was a safe voice around. And then my mum came and stayed with me. And Monica is a psychologist, so she was really good at helping me through those really traumatic sort of triggers mm. but I was reaching out and just I just needed help I needed to make sense of my life it's it's one thing to not know your future and I'm quite comfortable in ambiguity I don't I'm, I'm happy with spontaneity there's a whole other thing to not know your past your lived experience mm. to go we just had this incredible wedding like was it Fake? Were those vows not? Were, you, were the tears you shed? What did I miss? Fake? Yeah, what is going on? Mm. And then I felt entirely estranged from myself, which was the hardest part. How can I trust myself? How can I trust my opinion on anything? Do I even like tea? I don't know. I don't know anything. And so therapy helped a lot. The resources I reached out to helped a lot. And then coming into this place where I realized trauma impacts your brain. Your prefrontal cortex or your thinking brain is reduced in its, uh, I guess, capacity and your limbic system or your emotional brain is heightened. 
And so I was getting triggered and not knowing how to get myself out of it. And I started by just doing really basic things. I'm like, okay, I think brushing my teeth is probably a good idea. You know, it's been a few days. <laughs> it might be, might be wise. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so I just did that. And, you know, most of us have this routine where we get up and, and we have a normal morning routine and we don't have to think about it. It just happens. But I realized for me, it's like I had to actually go, well, where is my toothbrush and what do I do with it now that I have it? And I was like, oh, my brain's really broken. Mm. I have to relearn things because I didn't trust anything anymore. So I very slowly reintegrated these very basic life things back into my world over several weeks, very micro habits, two steps forward, one step back type thing. And eventually was able to drive my car, go to the gym very slowly, uh, drive to work and yeah, and eventually get remarried, which is like mind-blowing. I never, ever, ever thought that I would be here. What does that experience, how does that give you the perspective that couples with your research around habits, Mm. starting small, how does that inform some of that? So much, Ali. I remember thinking at the time, if I can't rewire my brain, I'm quitting habits because I can't really help anyone if I can't help myself because I'm so determined and I I don't want this to break me any further. So I'm putting everything into this. And if I can't change myself, then I'm out. But I was able to profoundly change my life and my thoughts and to change associations that I had with the trauma to now actually they're things that are peaceful and they're things that are absolutely fine and I don't have an adrenaline dump when I see them anymore, even though I used to. And that understanding of the capacity to rewire our brain so powerfully and so profoundly is exactly the message of habits. You can live a life of utter freedom if you want to. And all you need to do is change the associations in your brain between whatever unwanted habit you have or unwanted trigger that you have. You can change that through persistence and commitment and consistency, that's what it gave me. The power of community when it comes to, like we want to change our habits because there's something about our life we want to step into further, um, something we want to do more of or do less of. Having a community around you is so key. What have you found either from your own personal experiences or from your research about the power of community? What serves you in terms of changing habits? And what do we need to be mindful of in terms of who we hang around, what they might say, (laughs) (laughs) even if it's supportive? What do we need to be mindful of in terms of that community to support or that environment to support the life we want? Yeah, it's so important. Accountability that comes from community can double our chances of success. It's huge. When we look at women specifically, we find that community is really paramount for any sort of even being willing to make changes or to exercise or to try a new recipe, like really simple things even. Women in particular need to feel like they're supported by their community to even initiate a change. Men as well, but it's definitely more in the bloodline of women, I believe. Certainly the research shows that. Community can be a make it or break it for so many things. You know, I I run a habit course at the moment. There's 300 people in it, mostly women, and it's beautiful. You know, the Facebook group is just full of 
support and you can really see that sometimes when someone's down, it's the community that lifts them up because I think people, especially people who are close to you, can see things in you that you can't see yourself. They can, I mean, my friends are my voice of reason a lot of the time. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like they know me better than I know me. (laughs) They know what I need and, you know, when I'm being ridiculous or I'm expecting too much of myself or when when I've got unrelenting standards. And because we have so many biases Mm. and uh, I think that our community can level all of that out. So I think it's really essential. There is one caveat though with this is some of the research shows that say, for example, you're trying to reduce your alcohol intake and you tell your community that, and then they see you down at the pub having a beer. There's going to be a sense of guilt or shame within you most likely what your community may not realise is that you've gone now two weeks without a drink and this is a time you've allowed yourself to have a drink and you shouldn't be feeling shame. And and if anything, you should be celebrating the fact that you've gone two weeks if that was your goal. Mm. And that's when community can sometimes backfire. It's rare, I think, if people know you well enough, then it's okay. But I do think that especially in terms of like, putting our goals out into the world, I think we need to be careful. If people don't understand the process of changing our habits, just two steps forward, one step back, failure is inevitable. It's not, a, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. We all will fall down because that's how life happens. That's how our brains work. If they can support you through that rather than point the finger or cast the first stone, then I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. Gina, I find that so interesting. When do we tell people what our goal is or what we want to change and when do we hold back? I think it depends on the goal. You know, I wanted to start a gratitude journal a few years ago and that's not necessarily something I needed to share with mm. my world. But say I wanted to I don't know, run a marathon, that's probably something I'd share with people because I would want support or I might find someone else who's running a marathon that I could run with or I think it depends on the goal and your community, like how close you feel with your community or how supportive your community is. If your community isn't likely to be supportive, I mean, don't share your goals. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not going to work out for you because one of the reasons we do the things we do is social acceptance, mm. cultural norms. And if we don't feel like our community is going to gel with what we want to do, then probably not a good idea to share it but I think it's a good idea to share it when it's something you might need a bit of support with. Finding those accountability and what that actually looks like and probably what comes to mind is even having the conversation about the small steps and Mm. what my targets are and Mm. what my what do I do when I do fail if we're going to use that term what do I do when when I miss a day or I uh, there's a week where I haven't stepped into what I had hoped to or I've felt sick or the kids have felt sick, but having that kind of conversation. Is there ever a time where what might sound like support is actually not support (laughs) from our community (laughs) and what do we be mindful of there? You know, the caring friend that goes, oh, you'll be right, just have another drink, have another whatever. (laughs) Definitely. Or you've already learned this lesson. Why are you doing this again? Or I thought we went through this last week. You know, those kinds of conversations are so not helpful. Look, I think if you walk away from a conversation feeling empowered and inspired, then you're onto something. If you walk away from a conversation feeling defeated or feeling any sense of shame or guilt, that's not the message you needed in that point of time. Perhaps another time, but not at that particular point in time. 
sometimes all we need is empathy and compassion and for someone to go, oh, look, I did this as well. Like, or I think it's totally valid that mm. you had a fall down at this time. I mean, look at how much else you've got going on or you've been doing so well. Just pick yourself back up when you feel like you can. That's the voice that does the most wonder. The kind, compassion, the supportive, compassion, but also that, yeah. that encouragement for uh, continuing to step out. I'm also really curious around short-term thinking versus longer-term thinking, particularly when we're looking at behaviour change or habits. My natural tendency is often to go short-term, 10 weeks, 12-week, you know, challenges or sprints mm-hmm. or whatever it is. It might be projects at work. It might be uh, things around the house. It might be, you know, writing. Often those things are very finite. There's a start, there's an end and unconsciously by the end of it, I'm like, I'm going to be a completely different person. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> We're laughing because we know that's not true. Um, but I've noticed in the last, and I've got a beautiful husband, and in the last probably couple of years, we've been talking more about the longer term, mm. the 70, 80-year-old versions What does that look like? Our kids are 14 and 16 and even just recently we've been talking about how do we become the kind of parents that our kids want to hang around, right? Like so kind of at that age where my friends or my husband goes, oh, I guess we'll have to go and see mum and dad and it almost comes with this sigh of obligation. I'm like, well, what does it mean to, what would that look like where our kids go, Oh, we'll get, we get to go and see mum and dad. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> what, and what would that embody? So it's almost yeah. this, there's no, doesn't feel like there's a start or an end date, but there's this kind of longer term future state embodiment versus that short term, tick it off in 12 weeks, post the photo, <laughs> <laughs> change my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I there's it. good in both, but I'm curious yeah. whether you've noticed either from your experience or from the research, yeah. what are the pros and cons of both of those? Where is it valuable to step into that shorter term, mm. small and really chunk it down and also have that kind of perspective on the bigger term? I mean, you are so not alone in your way of thinking of like wanting the short term. And we all do because we're impatient. And it's why lots of people don't floss their teeth because you're not going to floss your tooth and go, oh, look, I've got no cavities. It's going to take a while. And you're not going to go up one flight of stairs and look down and be like, oh, I've just dropped a kilogram. Like you're going to have to consistently, you know. I hope for it every time. I know, right? I know. (laughs) But we, we all want the quick results because they motivate us. They make us feel like what we're doing is getting an outcome and it's the outcome that we're seeking. One of the things that I've, I guess, shifted my mindset around is seeking rituals, not results. And if I was to continue in a particular ritual, eventually the result will come. Mm. And focusing on the result or not doesn't change the outcome. But focusing on the ritual does. If I was to focus on the result and not do the ritual, nothing's going to happen. But if I can just focus on the small steps every day and consistently, I'll wake up one day and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, I'm here. This is awesome. And so I think that's a bit of a mindset shift that really helps. I don't think it's a bad thing to focus on the short term Mm. either, though. I think it can be incredibly motivating. It can increase our self-efficacy. It can give us a goal to work for and, and that's an incredibly beautiful place to be in terms of our drive and our persistence and 
a focus. You know, we can focus on things short term. We can't long term. We'll lose focus and forget and then come back to it. And that's sort of the cycle of life. So I think there are things that you can focus on short term and things that are more long term. And, you know, your question around the embodiment long term is how can I show up for my kids to like me? Look, your kids are teenagers. I really don't think they're going to have a good time around you no matter what. No, I totally get that. I'm banking in 20 years' time. In dude. 20 years' time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where they come back around and go, my parents are yes, kind of okay. Totally. Or just like buy a yacht or something. That's <laughs> the only time they can hang I out with you. I don't think that would know. even work at the moment. <laughs> yeah, but what does the embodiment look like? And my husband and I talk about this as well. You know, we want to be really healthy old people. And so to do that, we have certain lifestyle routines that we do now in the lead up to that, you know, we do mobility stuff. And I was like, let's learn Tai Chi, you know, things which just makes me feel almost old, but also are so important. And it's almost these foundations for the long run. Both Both are good. Yeah, both are good. Absolutely. I think they both serve a purpose. What helps in terms of resetting a habit? So what I mean by that is last year, my husband and I did a 12-week, we did do a 12-week challenge and it was amazing, mm-hmm. really strong support, huge amount of accountability. We talked a lot around what we were doing well. So, I, you know, a lot of what you've talked about so far, I feel like we ticked a lot of boxes. Yeah. Um, we celebrated at the end of it and it was fantastic. And there are plenty of things from that 12 weeks that have continued that I would say are now kind of habits uh, and then other things that have dropped off and kind of probably gone back to pre-12-week <laughs> <laughs> experiences, yeah. give yourself a little bit more leeway. Sometimes those experiences can trip us up to try again Yeah, because the opposite of self-efficacy is that, well, I've got proof that I'm not very good at this, yeah. that, I, that I fail myself or I don't trust myself enough with this experience. Mm. So if we want to reset and go, okay, I'm going to tackle it differently this time, what might be some tools or strategies you'd recommend? I think the biggest thing is aligning yourself with your values. What is it that I really value? Why did some of these things stick and why did some of them not stick? And also creating an environment, like really practically creating an environment to help you to reset those habits again and to change them. You know, I People often say to me, I I feel so glued to my phone and it's the first thing I do first thing in the morning and I'm on it for hours Then I'm late for work and I'm like, okay, well, have you tried putting your phone in a different room or even somewhere where it's out of reach? Because we depend so much on our willpower, which is a fleeting resource. If we were to just create an environment that stopped us from doing the things we didn't want to do or helped us do the things we did want to do, it would make such a difference. You know, Gary would put his shoes right by his bed. So as soon as he'd wake up, it's the first thing that he would slide into were his sneakers. And I do the same things. You know, I don't have my phone, for example, on my desk at work because I never want to be stuck on something like an email or a word I just can't find and then impulsively check my phone because that's then going to be a cycle that I'm going to repeat. Now I've got this unwanted habit of procrastinating and it's not going to serve me. So I create environments in my house and my world that serve the purpose of living out my values. So I think that's how we do that. I love that, changing the environment, changing the space. Where do rewards fit in? 
Yeah, reward. So every habit has three ingredients and we've talked about the trigger and then the routine, that's the habit itself. And then the final ingredient is the reward. Mm. We will only repeat things if it's served us in some way. And sometimes it's not serving us in the best way, but it's still serving us. You know, if you if you eat dessert every night and you that might not be great for your health goals, say, but it certainly satisfies your sweet tooth. So that's a, a reward that you'll get. Every reward that we get reinforces the habit in our life. And the bigger the reward or the stronger the reward, the more reinforced the habit will be, which is actually where addictions come in. So things that we find addictive are giving us a huge reward, which is why we want to do it again and again and again. And nothing feels as good as this. And it's really hard to stop. So rewards are important. But you know, people say they, they might suggest rewards like, you know, if you go to the gym, then buy yourself a new outfit or go have a massage. And yes, look, those things are good, but those aren't the rewards that are going to reinforce your habit. The biggest reward that will reinforce your habit is the feeling that you've done something good. It's actually sitting in that moment and going, well done you. And it's tiny. You don't have to say it out loud. It's just acknowledging it. And that actually sends dopamine into your brain, which, and then your brain goes, well, that felt great. I really want to do that again. I'm really proud of myself. And that reinforces the habit. So that's where those rewards come in from. That ability to sit in that, um, it is hard. So hard. Are there tools that you've got or ways oh, that how do you like so? This. Yeah. Because <laughs> when we feel good, it becomes easier to, to do. But yeah. sometimes that thought of, yeah, sure, I went to the gym. What comes to mind for me is, mm. oh, yes, I did go to the gym, but I only did half the workout or I didn't quite lift the weight that I did mm-hmm. a week ago. Yeah. So, yeah, go me, but yeah. a bit with an eye roll. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, which is not a great <laughs> reward feeling, no. what you're kind of describing and talking about. So that's almost a habit itself mm, to yeah. kind of train ourselves to, to just be okay with that. Yeah. How do you do it? (laughs) It's so hard. I think back to something like that. If we go back to seeking rituals, not results, Mm. then the fact that you got there, that was the goal, right? And to know that some weeks your body is going to be like less strong or you're going to be less motivated and you're going to pick back up again. It's not like you're going downhill forever. So there's that self-compassion piece in that. When I published this book, it was so funny. I did the same thing when I submitted my PhD thesis. I sent it in and then the next day I had a job as a research fellow and I was like straight back into it. Not a moment to go, oh my gosh, great. I think I went out for dinner with my parents, but I was just thinking about the job that I was starting the next day. But I remember when I finished this book and it arrived in the mail and oh my goodness, the feeling was so surreal. And I intentionally took the rest of the day off. No plans, which like gives me anxiety. (laughs) But I was like, today, it's just, I'm going to focus on celebrating this. And it doesn't have to be a whole day thing. Like that to me, obviously, was a really big deal. I had to share it with my community to sort of feed on their celebration a bit because I didn't want to, I couldn't do it myself. I struggle with celebrating myself. I think what's helped me, Ali, is, you know, I went from not being able to get out of bed and brush my teeth. And so I'm so mindful now that everything I do outside of that you know everything I do that's greater than getting out of bed is a win and because I've been able to rewire my brain like that I've gone I've been able to do this I've literally went from not being able to leave my house to traveling around the world with my book 
running courses globally, working with some really big names and that's huge. And to celebrate each part along the way has helped me go, okay, I can do this. Like this is all right. But when we're used to just succeeding and having this baseline of stuff, like probably like in your world, like going to the gym and then it becomes not enough, it's harder. Probably then the days where you don't go to the gym, like you plan to go and you didn't go, remember that. And then the day that you do go, be like, but I still feel better than that day I didn't go. Mm. Being able to see that comparison and and recognise that turning up in the space. Yeah. The book, The Habit Revolution, incredibly exciting. Thank you. And huge amount of work that goes into the research, the writing, the consideration around it. What are some of the key takeaways from this book that you would hope people walk away with, put into place differently? Thank you for that question. The key takeaway is that we have the power to rewire our brains. And I I don't say that as a fluffy neuroscientist or anything like that, as we absolutely do. The biggest result that I find from people who truly apply habit change is freedom. And it's freedom from being stuck in a rut of what they usually do. It's freedom from negative mindsets. It's freedom from negative self-talk. And it's freedom to live a life of healthy, a a healthy lifestyle without having to grind through it, without having to consistently depend on willpower or motivation because our habits don't need willpower or motivation. They happen automatically. So I think that is the biggest takeaway is that, yes, you can eat well and exercise and have a great bedtime routine and be super productive at work and, and do all of that and more and it be completely habitual. You absolutely can be that person. I think a lot of the resources that we've had around habit change has been very, I guess, somewhat clinical, like do this, do that, 1% better type thing. But the habit revolution guides you through the setbacks. It guides you through the moments where you don't want to get out of bed or when your phone is luring you to stay on marketplace for too long, you know. It guides you through all those very real moments that we have in our world. Practical, useful, shifting from rituals, you know, from results to rituals and coming back to that as well. Often what can happen is that we get really excited at the start and particularly for those that have listened and might go, right, yes, I can see how I can chunk that smaller so it's really doable. If my capacity gets stretched, I can still step in and do that. And we get really excited towards the end. You've just come through this experience in writing the book Mm. and it's a significant project, so to speak, Mm. in pulling that together to going from, you know, getting that, yes, we'll publish this book to actually writing it, editing it, and then now marketing and getting it out in the world. How did you you know, in your lived experience, if we use this as a project, navigate that messy, boring middle. The messy middle. Because the start (laughs) is exciting, the anticipation and possibility is all there. Everything that we do is is a win early in those early stages. And then at the end, being able to see the book and celebrate that with your community is really exciting. But there's this just boring, mundane, (laughs) in (laughs) the middle. middle. Yeah. I'm such a geek. I loved the whole process. (laughs) I loved the messy middle because every chapter is an entirely different topic to the other one. So 
you might stumble across creating new habits and then the next one's breaking old habits and then it's micro habits and then here's some neuroscience. And so every chapter kept me super excited. I'm also a, such a list person and I had the chapters all laid out and every time I'd write parts of it, you know, I would tick off all the subheadings I wanted to do. And so that kept me inspired. And the one thing that I did do as well, which is something I learned throughout my PhD, is to never finish a task that day. So I would never finish a chapter that day because then I'd start the next day with a clean slate and that's terrifying. So if I had like one more paragraph to write, I'd be like, right, we're done here. And so then the next morning I'm hitting the ground running because I know exactly what I want to write. And that would inspire me to then keep going. So I think that really helped with the messy middle, I'd say. But honestly, like the, the topics in my book, I have been teaching in my habit courses. And I think seeing how it's transformed people's lives has made me so excited to get it out into the world that I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for someone to read this part. Even when I was doing the audiobook, <laughs> so funny. I was reading one part and I said to the tech guy, I was like, damn, that's really good. And <laughs> he's like, I know I've highlighted it. And it's like, it still got me really excited. Yeah, right. So that's <laughs> I definitely had a messy middle in my PhD. There were a lot of tears, a lot of moments of wanting to give up, a lot of uh, fantasizing about just giving it all in and becoming a florist. <laughs> so funny. I'm always a florist. Yeah. That's my alternative job me too. too. I think there's something exciting about it. Well, when you're just, ready, call me. I'll do it I in reckon, a heartbeat. <laughs> we can have a bookshop and a florist. Yes. I think we can make that work. Yes. And can we have raw desserts? Because I really done. like making like raw desserts. <laughs> um, there was a lot of that. I think it was a deadline that kept me going. Yeah, it wasn't an enjoyable process throughout the whole thing. But I had a deadline and I just had, I was too far into it to quit. <laughs> that was it. Accountability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Accountability and some yeah. supervisors going, where's my next exactly, bit? Exactly, exactly. That, uh, that helps really a lot as well. But to understand that that's really normal, it is part of it oh, yeah. and it is uh, finding those those little wins in the way. Yeah. We've talked quite a bit about starting a new habit that you might want to step into. Is it the same or is the formula slightly different if you want to break a habit? And even from your research, what was the most common habit that, you know, was there things that came up time and time again where people go, I want to stop doing this? Yeah, there is. I do a lot of corporate speaking and part of my keynote is I'll put a survey up and it's live on the screen. And I ask people, what is your most common unwanted habit? And they can anonymously put the unwanted habits up on the screen. And it sort of pops out in this big cloud. And time and time again, no matter who it is, no matter if it's CEOs, middle management, new grads, the ones that come back is I scroll on my phone too much. I snack when I'm not hungry. I stay up too late and I stay in bed too long in the morning. Those are the most common unwanted habits, which totally makes sense, right? Mm. And then some people will say things like, I have really negative self-talk, I procrastinate. There's sort of those other sort of fringe things as well, which I do cover in the book. But with breaking habits, there's two formulas. And one of them is the reverse of creating a new habit. So creating new habits all about deciding on the goal that you want to achieve or the habit that you want to create, finding a trigger and then consistently performing that in sync. Breaking a habit is knowing the habit you want to break, understanding what the trigger is, and then either avoiding the trigger if possible 
If not, then replacing the unwanted habit with a wanted habit when you're triggered. So for example, um, I had a client I worked with who would stop in at a fast food chain every day on his way home and his wife was like, come on, we can have dinner with the family and he wanted the same thing. So he, he would say to me, I just drive past those golden arches and I'm straight in the drive through I don't even think about it. And I said, could you drive a different way home? And he could and he did and he broke that habit straight away and that was a really easy fix. And now when he sees the golden arches, his brain's rewired it. He's not interested in mm -hmm. it anymore. His 30 days of abstinence can be a game changer. The other way to break a habit is that replacing. So say you don't want to be scrolling on your phone before bed. It's terrible for your sleep, people. <laughs> um, it's really hard. Say you, want, say you decide to read a book instead. It's really hard to have your phone there and the book there because the phone's going to give you way more stimulation, right? Like the analog black and white book is not going to be a match. No, and, and the moment I start reading, I remember I've got that appointment I've got to make tomorrow and I've just got to check that one email mm -hmm. and then I'm in. <laughs> then you're on Instagram for hours. <laughs> yes. And so it's changing the environment. It's actually removing the access to an unwanted habit and having a really easy access to your wanted habits. Replacing it environmentally makes a really big difference. And it could be things like having all your healthy snacks and easy access that if your fruit's cut up and your veggies are cut up, they're ready for you. And all the treat foods in the back of the pantry where you can access them, but you might need a stepladder to do that. And that could be enough of a barrier for you to go, oh, I can't be bothered getting the stepladder because that really helps. So create barriers for the things you don't want to do and enablers for the things you do want to do. Step ladder up the back. <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? Not. Unless you really want it, in which case that's okay. But it certainly stops the impulsive reaching for things. You're conscious about it. You're yeah. much more kind of thoughtful about it. I have heard you say that um, you kind of bust that myth of 21 days yeah. to to change a habit. Oh, this There is absolutely no research to support that it takes 21 days to change a habit. There was a study done in the... I think 1960s by a facial reconstruction surgeon who noted that it took his patients about three weeks post-surgery to get used to their new face when they looked in the mirror. And so he was like, okay, it takes three weeks for neuroplasticity. That means it takes three weeks to change the brain. That means it takes three weeks to change a habit. And that makes sense for facial reconstruction surgery, but it does not make sense for our everyday habits. It takes anywhere between sort of three weeks to up to a year to change a habit. And it depends on how habitual you are as a person, your capacity, how much stress you're under, how your environment is, how much support you've got and how consistent you are with your habit. The more you repeat it, the more reinforced it'll get. The biggest factor in how long it takes you to change a habit is intention. The more you want it, the quicker it'll develop. And it's the same with breaking habits. I've worked with people who have broken the habit instantly, like biting their nails, for example, when we've had a good heart-to-heart -heart about what do you get out of this and why is it embarrassing for you and why, what reward do you get from it and what triggers you? And once they've got all this awareness, like, it's done. Don't need it anymore. Don't need it anymore. I don't want it. One of the ways, and you mentioned it before, is coming back to values. So what, what's important to me and almost bringing that much more to the forefront. Are there any other things that help kind of enhance that, that sense of intention? 
Uh, values and interestingly visualization, which is something I never thought I would be speaking about as a researcher, but there's so much incredible data around the power of visualization. And it's actually walking yourself through actually performing the ritual. And it's almost like a mental practice. And so that can really enhance the, the drive and the actual frequency of performing something, which then reinforces the consistency and therefore the habit. So those two things are really, yeah, probably the biggest things. And a good night's sleep. We can't do anything on a terrible night's sleep. <laughs> I actually heard this quote the other day, which I've repeated a couple of times, but it was, if you don't know what you need, it's a good night's sleep. <laughs> 100%. It could be more accurate. But it's also neurologically accurate because our prefrontal cortex is the logical part of our brain. And then we've got the emotional part of our brain where our habits sit. And when we don't get a good enough sleep, our emotions are all over the place. It's really hard to regulate them. And so it's actually then that's why we fall back into our old habits. We don't have resilience. We don't have a lot of self-control. So you probably notice on the days you're more tired, you might scroll more, you might grab some more sugar than normal, like you're just a bit more crabby. And that's all this brain chemistry that's going on. And so good night's sleep. It's just a, it's a game changer. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not my least for tonight, 100%. Hence why I'm so crazy about my sleep routine. <laughs> yeah, well, we are talking on the Gold Coast. We both live on the Gold Coast. Yes. So when you said I'm in bed by 8.30, I'm like, so am I. But I'm yes. also up at 4, 4.30. 4 4.30, yes. Running into the day because yeah. the sun's up and it's yeah. beautiful. So, yeah, completely agree. Very oh, protective of, of sleep. I yeah, think yeah. the more that we can do that, it just it's a high performance tool if we could ever 100%. find one uh, in terms of, yeah, prioritising that. For sure. As I said, our kids are teenagers, they're wanting to stay up longer and I'm like, you've got the wrong parents here. We yes. know how important yes. that is. Go to bed, go yeah, to sleep. absolutely. And I love that that's such a sacred thing in your house. It's so important. You mentioned before the power of visualising. Mm. How important is it to also have visual tools to be able to see our habits. So whether that's journaling, whether that's a calendar that where we're ticking things off, mm. we are creatures who like to see progress. You talked about your list feed <laughs> and that can just be a progress marker in another yeah. way. Where is, you know, how useful is that? Are there better tools to use when it comes to tracking habits, being able to see it visually to almost get out of our own head and out of our own thinking? One of the most incredible tools for creating a new habit or breaking an old one is using a habit tracker. And it's exactly as you said, it's you write down the habit that you're wanting to change and then the days of the week and you tick off every time you have done it. And it actually gives you a sense of reward, like we were talking about before with that dopamine hit. As humans, we also don't like, we're quite competitive. A lot of us, even if we're not a competitive person, we don't like breaking a streak. So say we've said to ourselves, I'm going to do this for 30 days and you've got 28 ticks. It's really hard to not keep going. So you want to keep going so that you don't break the streak of ticks. So that's a really good tool. It's almost like a gamification of behavior change and it's extremely powerful. There's actually a pretty famous habit research study that came out not so long ago that showed that when people were tracking their habits, they did their habits. As soon as they stopped tracking, they stopped doing their habits. And that's in that acquisition phase, that very initial phase of developing habit. Once it's developed, you don't need to keep tracking. But in that development stage, I actually think it's one of the most important things we can do. 
And again, it feels um, it's cumulative. Whenever I have done it, and I haven't done it extensively, it feels really minor because it takes yeah. you know less than three seconds to tick it off or to write it. But it's that ability to be able to see after a week or two. Yeah. Oh, I have actually yeah. done that, which fuels the self-efficacy of. Yeah. I didn't think I could get this far. Here I go, another three days or another. And if you couple that that tick with well done you, that tiny moment of feeling good about it, you've got a double whammy of a reward there and it's really powerful. It's kind of like when you give a child a golden star for doing their chores and they feel awesome and they're like, I want to do it again. We don't grow out of that reward learning as adults and that's exactly what's happening in our brain. It's a reinforcement of a reward pathway. Keep doing it again. Keep doing it again, again. yeah. In terms of... Obviously this book, there's so much of the research that you've got in this for people to step into that sense of freedom for the year ahead or for the next thing that they want to tackle with this beautiful, genuine acknowledgement of life and capacity and that things also turn up. And so it's not just a, well, you gave that a shot (laughs) kind of feeling, but a chance to be able to come back and to, to reconnect. And even that recognition that it can take up to a year to change a habit, to embed it into our world, gives us time to figure out how it works and and where it's going to work. For yourself and research, what are you interested to look at in terms of what's next when it comes to whether it's habits or whether it's how we kind of look and shift and change behaviour? My Christmas wish list for every year (laughs) is to look at how our temperaments and our personality types are impacting our capacity to change our habits. My husband, for example, is such a creature of routine. He is happy to eat the same thing every day and just do the same routine day in, day out. I'm the opposite. I love spontaneity. I don't have two days the same and I love it like that. It would send him in a total panic if he had my lifestyle or I had his lifestyle. He holds on to habits much longer than I do. I can break habits quicker than him, but he can form habits much quicker than me. And I think there's there's something there in the temperament of who we are and there's only just a touch of research on this and certainly not enough to be able to conclusively say this is what's going on. But how powerful to be able to get someone's personality type through a questionnaire, which there are plenty, and go, okay, this is what would work for you and – you know, if you said to me, I want you to journal every day, I couldn't do it. I don't want to do it, so it's not yeah. going to happen. Whereas if you said to my husband, Mitch, you should journal every day, he'd be like, all right, and he'd just do it. So there are strategies that work for some that don't for others. And, and although I do, you know, I try to capture all of that in the teachings that I that I put out into the world to allow everybody a space to exist, you know, comfortably – I don't think we've quite nailed that part yet. So that would be my absolute dream is to do a study on that. So fascinating, that kind of crossover. One of the things I've been exploring and looking at is the value of our putting ourselves in the way of challenges, mm. even in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so our world, our work is rife with uncertainty. We don't know what's next. And often our natural tendency is to do less, to almost kind of shrink. Yeah. But growth and opportunity come from putting ourselves in the way of challenges. Mm, mm. So I'm a bit like you. I'm like, right, what's the next big thing (laughs) I'm going to put myself in front of as opposed to 
that which can be that kind of just natural tendency to kind of continue to do things. Whereas I smile thinking of my dad, he was absolutely a routine guy. Tuesday was rotary night. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> this happened on this night. Uh, oh there'd be goodness. times I'd ask him if he could do something and he'd be like, oh, I'd have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got like four days, Gina, to think about oh whether he can gosh. go to the post office for me. Oh, my god! But it's, it's that kind of temperament yeah. kind yeah. of that, that lays over that. Totally. Where do you think putting ourselves in the way of challenges mm. also kind of interacts with that sense of having habits that are almost like anchors that our brains don't need to think about. Mm. Where's the intersection of those two? Yeah, I mean, there's a chapter in my book called Do Something Different. And it actually shows that when we just reshuffle our lifestyles a little bit from, let's say you usually listen to the same radio station or you watch the same news channel or you always have a coffee first thing in the morning. If you were just to subtly change those things a bit, listen to a different genre of music, have a cup of tea instead or don't have a coffee at all, like not all time, just like reshuffling things that actually boosts our sense of well-being because the mundane is important for some things, but it's not where life is lived. It's not where we feel great. It's actually where we're just existing and we're just doing things because that's part of what we have to do or what we just generally do. But it's actually in doing something different that we're like, oh, I've discovered something about myself. I really like this genre of music or I love this new recipe. I never thought I would cook with this vegetable, but here we are and now it's my favourite or whatever it is. And I ran a clinical trial where the study participants would honour do something different intervention. I would send them random text messages on random days of the week at random times with totally crazy weird things to do. And they were so into it. They loved it. And Like what? What are some of the weird? <laughs> I would be like, all right, today you're driving a different way to work or today I want you to go to a dance class or I want you to write a short story or call a long lost friend. And they'd be doing these things like, you're crazy. Like what is this trying to achieve? Interestingly, they lost weight. They reduced their level of depression and anxiety because they were more mindful. Our habits feed off each other. One habit feeds off another. They're like a web. So when you break or when you reshuffle one habit, the rest of your day then becomes more mindful. If you drive a different way to work, instead of parking in the same spot, going up, making coffee, chatting to the same person, and then the routine of checking your emails, etc., you're now driving a different way. You've discovered something different. Your brain is no longer in the same pathway. You might get to work and go, I don't actually feel like a coffee or I might get this job done before my emails this morning. So it's a priority. So we get to make intentional decisions more often. So fascinating, that yeah. connection between um, mental well-being, but also being probably more alert to what is in our world and what is around us. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating to also then look at temperament uh, or personality kind of types in terms of some of those tools or protocols or suggestions that we might talk about yeah. and how that might be different. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> Maybe the next Yay. thing to tap into around uh, that, that point of research. Yeah. What's exciting you about this book going out into the world? Oh my goodness. It is such a vulnerable thing to put a book out into the world. You know, I've... Um, it's truly my heart and soul in this book. And so it's exciting to almost like crack myself open and go, here's a part of me in this book. I've, I've been exceptionally like vulnerable in it. I've, I've shared things in my book that some of my friends don't even know about my life. And 
I don't feel at all hesitant about that, which is scary and exciting and maybe I'm blocking it out. I don't know. But (laughs) what I'm most excited about, honestly, is even the publisher and the copy editor have been writing me emails about how their life has changed as a result of reading the book. And I'm like, the head of publishing, she would read a book every couple of days. But for her to say your your book has profoundly, you know, changed the way I see things and it's helped me with these long-standing habits that is so practical and it's so helpful, you know, it brings tears to my eyes mm. thinking about it. This copy editor wrote on my social media page the other day, she said, I'm so excited for this. When I read this book and I've still been doing these certain things that are in there and I thought, I've never even met you and you were one of those beautiful people in the background that helped make this project happen. And the fact that you're impacted is incredible because you would have been reading five other books at the same time. Mm. It's that. It's I'm so excited for people to hold on to this and to get the content in their life where they can truly make genuine and practical change. This is not a book that's like, I'm here to motivate you. I'm not interested in motivating anybody because motivation comes and goes. I'm in the trench of the messy middle with you, guiding you out of it. And that's what I'm super excited about. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Enid, because I think there's something that's so, there's an ability for us to be able to access those stories within ourselves Mm. when we hear them of, of others. And I have no doubt that that was a, wrestle of a decision to make mm-hmm. uh, from a research and an a- academic point of view. It can be let's just make it about yeah. that. It's not about me. Th- these tools stand on their own, but it's the so the true. power of the connection of the story yeah. uh, and putting ourselves out there. So thank you for putting that into place and coupling that with practical tools <laughs> <laughs> that yes. we can make this year <laughs> and the years beyond some of the most powerful if we step into those. Yeah. Uh, so if I come full circle with the final question of this podcast, mm-hmm. the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Mm-hmm. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I would say it's it means to me living a life of your own individuality, whatever that might be. And, you know, you said it so beautifully. It's like you totally know my brain when you said as an academic, it's hard to talk about ourselves. And it is. It's we're trained not to. And to step outside of that, even to have braids and a nose ring for me as an academic was huge. And it took me so long to accept that that's who I was. And it's to have tattoos and to accept that. That's what makes me stand out in my own life is I'm on my own journey and I'm I love it and I'm accepting of it and I love who I am and the things that I've done. But also when I've done that, it's impacted other people in much more of a profound way than when I was stuck in my lab and not sharing about my journey and not being true to who I am. So I think we all live a standout life if we are on our own course. If you've enjoyed this conversation then let's keep the conversation going the main place that i hang out is on instagram at ali hill a-l-i-h-i-l-l one of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review standout life podcast on whatever platform you are listening to you can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out and if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of then please share 
share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.